As most of you know, I live overlooking the river, and it's pretty out there. You know, sometimes you just want to sit out there and look at it and take it in. And you relax, and you feel the sense of God's presence. And you know what happens to me a lot of times is I'm just sitting there thinking. I find myself sort of working through my problems and thinking about decisions I have to make. And next thing you know, I'm thinking about the future, and I'm going to go down that path. You ever been there, done that kind of thing? And you're just kind of caught up in thinking about things as you feel God's presence in this beautiful setting. Well, I'm talking about that because Daniel is going to be in sight of water today. But it's not a country river. It's actually a canal that connects three rivers. And as he's there, he is going to experience God's presence in a very powerful way. But he's going to go even beyond that because he's going to have a vision. He's going to have a vision about the future. It's not like him thinking, God, what are you going to do in the next couple of years? It's like, this is what I'm going to do in many years ahead of what's going to happen. So it's a pretty profound experience for him as we continue our series in Daniel. We'll be looking today at Daniel chapter um, chapter 8, and then next week we'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, if you want to look ahead. Next week we're going to be talking, getting off the subject of uh, of visions and of the future and prophecies. We're going to look a little bit at a, at a famous prayer that he prays and he has recorded for us. But this week we're back at looking at prophecies as we continue this series that we're calling um, The Future Belongs to God. And last week I heard Clifton did a great job um, speaking on chapter 7. And this week is somewhat similar, but a little bit different, a little bit psychedelic, you know, a little bit outer space kind of stuff. Clifton, by the way, is in Texas. So he's, um, if things are going well, he's probably out fishing around now. That's what he said he was planning on doing and having a good time. So we hope that all's going well for him. But today we'll jump into this, and we're going to look at Daniel's vision by the canal. And the first portion of it, verses 1 through 14, he observes the vision. And we could spend a whole lot of time here we're not going to read it all because it'll take forever. But there's a lot of material. So just I really encourage you to go home. Hopefully you do this. You don't just listen, but you go home and read these passages because I'm skimming over a lot of material here. We could spend probably several days just studying this together. So here's the gist of what happens. Daniel, he's probably in his 70s now. We know it's about 550, around 550 BC. How do we know that? Because it tells us at the beginning that King Belshazzar was king, and it, this was early in his reign, and we can calculate it out, and the figures they give us, it's about 11 years before he's executed. So if you remember the story in chapter 5, Daniel prophesies this guy's going down, and he goes down, and he dies, uh, just as Daniel said. And so this is about 11 years earlier. And it's about two years after the dream that he had that Clifton told you about last week. So some similarities today, but some, some significant differences. So a couple of years have passed, and Balthazar is still the king, but he's not really king. Remember, Balthazar is a co-regent. You guys understand what those guys are, the co-regents? It's like you have a king, and the king's son rules with him, and he's a co-regent. And so the king was Nabonidus, and he was traveling around the Babylonian Empire, and Balthazar was staying at, you know, Washington, D.C. You know, for them, Washington, D.C. was Babylonia or modern-day Iraq, and he's hanging out there. So the event takes place at this time. That's the when, and the where is the Ulai Canal. And the Ulai Canal is located by Susa, the city of Susa, in the land of Elam. Is that significant at all? Is that important to us at all? Do we really care, right? 
And that's a good question that you'd ask that. I know some of you are thinking that. So, so good thoughts because I'm going I'm to try to answer it a little bit. It actually is interesting that it all ties in. Have you ever noticed that God never, he never leaves anything hanging? You know, he ties it all together. They're, everything kind of fits. It's like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. And so what's interesting here is he's, going, he's getting prepared to tell us about the rise of the Persian Empire. And that's going to be the beginning as he talks about the rise of several empires. Well, guess where he starts? He starts at the location where the Persian Empire begins to rise. Because Susa and Elam had been taken over by the Persians. And Nabonidus, the king, was very nervous about these guys. Because he's thinking, these guys are getting strong. He will try to get the Persians to fight against the Medes and fight against the Lydians. And instead, the Persians and Medes will join together, defeat the Medians, and march on and conquer Babylon. Interesting stuff, huh? So, so it's the ideal place to start the story because this is where it's all going to start. And so he's there, and he's probably just kind of checking out this man-made wonder, this canal, and he's looking at it. And the first thing that happens is he sees a ram come. I mean, I see deer sometimes in the distance where I live. You know, it's kind of fun to see them. I have friends come over who like to hunt, and they say, man, I wish I had me a rifle right now. I think, man, we're just looking at the deer. Um, but, but, you know, they're kind of pretty out there in the distance, and, and, and he sees this ram come up, and he's checking out this ram, and the ram has significance. And later in the chapter, God will tell him exactly what the ram is all about. But even if God didn't tell him, most people who know their history whether they're Christians or not, could figure this one out. Because rams, that was, that was the animal that the Persians liked. It's the animal that Oakdale Junior High likes, right? Am I right? Have we got any rams here today? Any rams here? We got one ram. All right. All right, buddy. So we've got one ram. Good job, Luke. Um, so the, the deal with the rams in those days is that they, they would take, so the Persians, when they would go off to war, the king would wear a ram helmet. Is that styling? And, and we found a bunch of their shields, and all their shields have rams on them. So these guys were the rams. That was their animal. And this particular ram has two horns, and one is longer than the other, significantly longer than the others. Well, originally, remember, we said the Medes and the Persians were a team. They worked together, and they formed the Medo-Persian tribe, and they conquered Babylon and became the Medo-Persian Empire, but then the bigger horn, Persia, took over, and they became the Persian Empire. So that's what God's telling them, is this is what's going to happen. It's hard to believe the Babylonian Empire was the first truly great empire the world had ever known. It seemed like it was undefeatable. But this time, 11 years before it happened, God is saying, they're going down, and Persia is going to take over, ultimately. And then this ram, you know, it's running around. It's kind of feeling good about itself, and it gets puffed up. The language is it gets puffed up. What happens to a champion? What happens to a team? What happens to a nation when they get puffed up and they think no one can take them? They get taken. And that's what happens. They're getting puffed up, and somebody else comes on the scene. And this time, it's a goat. And this goat is angry. It's an angry goat. You don't like angry goats. This is an angry goat. And he's fast, too. He's so fast that he doesn't even touch the ground when he's running. Well, this is freaking him out. I mean, the ram wasn't that big of a deal, but now he sees this goat practically flying, and this goat is angry, and it has a big horn right in its head. Who is this? Well, if we understand our history, and he'll 
confirm this in a little bit, this has got to be Alexander the Great in Greece. Alexander the Great is the prominent horn because Alexander the Great's dad was killed by the Persians in Macedonia. We, have you been studying the news? There's a new Macedonia, it's a new nation just, just opened recently. And that's from that area. So he got angry. Oh, he was angry. And so he consolidated Greece. And in basically three years, he defeated the Babylonian Empire. And he consolidated it all in about 12 years. Greatest conqueror in history. Bam, 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 he had it. And then guess what happened? He got puffed up. And we know what happened to him. You know what the guy did? He actually started having the people that worked for him bow down to him. That he was like a god. That wasn't real popular. And then he fell in love with the Persian princess, Roxana. And he married her and had two sons and said they were going to take over for him. And he was demeaning his generals. And then... They had mutiny. They began fighting him. He was going into India, but they began fighting among themselves, and then he died. He was 33, and he just died. And they thought maybe it was because of his reckless living, or maybe because General Cassander slipped him a little bit of poison. He's dead. And now Daniel's watching, and now it's really got his attention. He's like, this is amazing. And, and he looks at this goat, and all of a sudden, the one horn is broken, and four horns pop up in its place. That's pretty weird. It's got four horns. Well, if we study history, after Alexander the Great died, he had four generals who fought among each other and started four little empires. Two of those generals became most prominent, and they were Ptolemy and Seleucid, and they called their kingdoms the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And so all this is just, it seems pretty crystal clear, and next thing that happens is he sees this little horn in the middle of the four. This little horn's kind of insignificant, but it has power for a while, and we're told that it goes into the glorious land, so it goes into Israel, and he causes all sorts of havoc. He fights among the people there, and he causes stars to fall down. Now, stars could be kind of a metaphorical reference to angels, but it could also be to warriors. And we know that freedom fighters would fight against them, known as the Maccabees. And so it does appear that there was some fighting going on here, and, and he was stirring it all up. And he did these horrible things. We'll talk a little bit more about them later, but he does these horrible, horrible things to um, the empire. Well, when people are to, to Israel, or to Judah, because Israel was gone, so just to the land of Judah. So he does these horrible things, and we're saying, like, well, well, who is this guy? And pretty much everybody agrees who he was, because there was a guy who was part of the Seleucid Empire. He became king. He wasn't that great, but he had some success for a while. This intimates that it came from Satan, that he had some power that he wouldn't normally have, did some horrible things, and he did some particularly horrible things in Jerusalem and to Judah. And his name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. What a name, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He reigned from 175 to 164 B.C. Now, this is the last part of this prophecy, but start and grasp what's going on here. We said that we started in 550. We're now in 170, 164, it ends up. If you know your math, I'm, I'm not the best in this, but you count it out, we're talking about 400 years. How old is the United States? How many years old are we? What is it? We're almost 300 now, something like that. Anyway, 
It's less than this period of time. Can, can you grasp how long 400 years are? So Daniel is having a vision that's telling him what's going to happen on the world scene 400 years after he's dead and gone, basically. And a lot of people have trouble with this, and they say, you know, he really couldn't, couldn't be real here. You know, Daniel, he must, Daniel must have been alive 400 years later and writing back about this because there's no way he could have known all this. But that's why they call it prophecy. He did know. He knew this stuff way in advance. And then he hears these two holy ones or angels talking to each other. And one says, when is this horrible work, all this horrible desecration that Antiochus is doing to the, doing to the temple and to the people of Judea, when's that going to end? And the other one answers... In Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored. In case that's not clear, let me make it crystal clear. This is what it says literally in the Hebrew language. Evening, morning, 2,300. Make sense? You guys get it? Okay? It's ready to move on? That one makes sense for you? Some of you are looking at me like, oh, man, that's weird. Kind of weird, huh? It's a reckoning. It's like, what? how do you count that? Well, there's several ways to count it. There's two primary ways. These mathematicians, I mean, you can, you know, for hundreds of years, you can bet guys have been trying to figure this out. And they always come back to about two options. One option is this, that this period of time began in late 171 B.C., with the removal of the godly high priest Ananias III. Antiochus got rid of him. And then it ended when they put in a new priest, a consecrated priest, in about 164 B.C., which would be about six years later. That's one option. The other option is it began in 167 B.C. with the prohibition of the sacrifice and ended in 163 B.C. with the death of Antiochus. That's about three years. It's either six or three years. Either of them work. Which one do you think is correct? Guess? How many people for number one? How many people for number two? Well, actually, the, most, most of the scholars felt it was number two. You know what I thought? I really don't care. <laughs> I mean, it could either one. They both work, right? They both work. Maybe it's both of them. I don't know. But we do know that God has this thing under control. And I think that's the main thrust of what we need to know here. Um, you know, every year... We go to the men's, we try to go every year to the men's retreat. And, and often at the men's retreat, there's a Christian illusionist that is there. And this guy's freaky. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, Kurt's shaking his head, yeah. I mean, last time we watched this guy, I was sitting with Clifton, and we watched this guy, and at first you think, it's just sleight of hand, you know, and, and you try to figure out, I, I know how he did that. Oh, I know how he did that. And then pretty soon it's like, that's not possible. There's no way he could do that. Clifton and I are busting up. We're saying, this guy's demon-possessed. <laughs> you know, there's no answer. How can he do this? And eventually you just say, oh, I forget. Forget trying to figure it out. Just enjoy it. You know, just enjoy the night. Um, and I think a lot of times that's how prophecy is. It's, it's mind-blowing, and you can't fully understand it. It's good to study it, good to kind of get a grasp for it. We can understand. We can look back and see how things happen. But even those sometimes are a little confusing. But most of the time, you just have to say, God's got this. God's got this. 
and I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to enjoy it. Consider, consider your own life. And two things to think about is, think of what God has already done in your life. And even if you're young, even if you're you know, a younger guy, maybe you're um, an Oakdale junior high school ram. You know, I mean, I mean, Luke can even think about what happened this, this year. And things that happen different than you thought, probably. I mean, things happen every year. Things happen different than we think. And you expand that by 10, 20, 30 years. And it's amazing. You know, I've, I've been talking to some old high school friends lately. And you think about where we were and what we projected for our lives and what happened in our lives. It's a little scary sometimes. It's so different than you think it's going to be. But if you walk with the Lord, you can see God making it, getting it to work out. He redeems even the bad things in ways that you never would have imagined. And so God is at work in all of this. And so I want you to consider that first in your life and think about that. And then there's another thought that comes, and that's the whole thought of of fearfulness. Sometimes we think of the future and we're frightened. And yet I think one of the primary messages here is that we don't need to be frightened because God has it under control. So you look at this and you realize how much out of control you are and then understand how much under control God has it. And you think back to Ecclesiastes and remember what God taught us in Ecclesiastes. We're looking through that book and we realize that God says, don't worry about the things you can't control. Enjoy your life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Walk with the Lord, you know, love him and enjoy him, but enjoy life and don't fret it because you can't control it anyway. That's most possible when you know the prophet, God himself. If you're not in a relationship with the prophet God, then these things can be really scary because now you have no hope but to try to control it on your own. That gets pretty scary. So I encourage you, if ever you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, to recognize that, you know, to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Um, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins uh, in your place. And choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And, and if you haven't done that, come and talk to us about it. Because that's the greatest comfort we can have when we uh, look at passages like this on prophecy. Now, what I'm going to do with the rest of this is it sort of summarizes it. So I'm going to pick it up and look at uh, interpretation. Daniel listens to its interpretation, verses 15 through 27. Let me read that to us. When I, Daniel, so by the way, this is where Daniel is now telling us he's the one who's writing this book. That's how we know for sure that he wrote it. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Didn't I tell you? 
See, I knew because I read ahead. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the end of the kingdom, of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. But by his cunning, he shall make the seat prosper under his hand and in his own mind. He shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken. But by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Pretty heavy stuff. So, so Daniel sees this vision, and the first thing that happens is he, he hears this voice, like a man's voice, and it's coming out of the heavens, hovering over it. Whose voice is that? God is obviously speaking, and God tells this man to talk to him. This guy has the appearance of a man, but he's clearly not a man. His name is Gabriel, which means God's hero. And we meet him later in the New Testament. Remember who he speaks to in the New Testament? He's the great warrior angel who goes and speaks to Zechariah and tells him he's going to have a son named John the Baptist. And then he goes and he speaks to a little peasant girl in Nazareth, named Mary, and he tells her she's going to have a son and his name's going to be? There you go. This is him, the same Gabriel. And he now appears to Daniel. And Daniel's so overcome by him because he comes in the power of his presence that Daniel, great man that he is, falls to the ground. And then he falls asleep and he wakes him up and he tells him he's going to tell him about the end. Now, the natural way to take this is, oh, he's going to talk about the end times. He's talking about us. But if you look at the context, that's not what he's talking about. Everything that they're concerned about is when is this horrible man, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, when is he going to stop causing all this harm to the temple and to Jerusalem? Remember, that's why he gave the amount of mornings and evenings and all that. When, how, is this, how is this going to end? And that's what he's saying. Don't be concerned. I'm going to tell you about how this horrible time is going to end. I'm going to tell you how it all works out. So he gets them calmed down and he starts to tell him. And he goes back and he refers to things that he's already talked about. And then he brings them up to present. And he tells them several things about him. He says this. He says that um, he will have a bold face. And he says that he will understand riddles. In fact, his nickname was the master of intrigue. You know, Tychus was not even supposed to be king. He wasn't, it, he wasn't in direct line to be king. But he was a master of political manipulation. And he manipulated his nephew out of that position. His whole career was about manipulation and about deceit and about cunning. And it says that it wasn't by his own power, but by the devil, basically, that he was able to do what he did. He caused a lot of destruction, and he hurt a lot of mighty men. Um, He did some horrible things in the land of Judah. If we look at history, we can kind of correlate this with his life. He actually got rid of the good king, a good priest, Ananias III, as we saw, and he put in some other priests that were not qualified, 
And then he put in one, and he replaced him with another, and they were fighting each other. And then he went down, and he fought in Egypt, didn't do too well, came back with a bad temper, and he found out these guys were fighting each other, and he went off. And he got rid of them, and he just started going crazy. And these are some of the things he did. He said, you can no longer circumcise um, baby boys. And he said, um, I'm going to, he said, said uh, we're going to get rid of your Bible. And it says earlier, it said that he threw the word to the ground. So they took the Bible and started burning it. He said, you can no longer make sacrifices in the temple. I mean, this went on for years. He started doing this. And then he started feeling really good about himself. And when people tried to rise up against him, he'd kill them. Thousands he killed. And then he said, I'm going to be like God. And he made coins. And Joe, you have some of these coins probably. He had, Joe's a coin collector. And he made coins. And on these coins he wrote, Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. And then he put his name. You know what he's saying? I am God's representative on earth. And he went into the temple and he took a pig, an unclean animal, and he sacrificed that pig on God's altar to his God, Zeus, which was symbolized by, we believe, a meteorite that had been found that the people would call the abomination that causes desolation because people were worshiping this meteorite. And so he put it up there and he changed the whole worship. And that's what he did. How do you think God felt about that? He's going down. Okay, so that's what he does. And God raises up some people to fight him. Mighty warriors headed up by a man called Judas, Judah the Hammer, or Judah, Judas Maccabee. That's what hammer means, Maccabee. And the Maccabees come to fight him. And this is probably prophesied by Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13, it reads, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. That would be in reference to the Seleucid Empire. And, and wield you as a warrior's sword. And so they become the warriors that fight against him. Now, he will come down. And when he goes down, it says that he doesn't go down by a human hand. That doesn't mean that God didn't use human hands, but it's very clear that this was God, God was doing this to him. And how it ended, we don't know for sure, unfortunately. There's four stories, and they don't precisely dovetail. But this is the gist of it. He was trying to conquer a temple and had a bad day fighting. Came back home and got really sick. Horrible stomach problems. And at that same time he heard that the Maccabees were defeating his troops in, Ju in Judah. And he started getting angry and cursing them and he decided he was going to go fight them even though he was sick. And he got in his chariot and he fell out of his chariot and they had to take him home, and he was all beat up. And for days, he was in agony from his wounds, and his stomach was so bad, the stench was so bad, you could hardly talk to him. And worms were coming out of him. And he was in absolute agony, and he died crying out against them and begging the God of heaven to let him live. And so ended the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, and the Maccabees took control of Judah and became an independent kingdom again, and that's why Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. Okay? And so that all happened, and it was all prophesied, and he all knew this stuff in advance. Now, there's two things at the end. He says that he should put this stuff, you know, he should 
put seal, put a seal on this stuff, not tell anybody. Well, then my question is, why is he telling us? You know, if he's putting a seal on it, why is he telling us? I'm having problems with this, um, but I'm looking at this, and there's a couple answers, really. One is, it's interesting that, did you know, we've, we've talked about this before, the Bible's written in three languages. It's written in Hebrew, which was the universal language of the Jewish people at the time that it was written originally, the Israelite people, and it's written in, in the New Testament in Greek, which was the universal language of the Roman Empire, but in parts of, of um, Daniel, it's written in Aramaic, and that was the universal language of the Babylonian Empire. But all of a sudden here, he switches back to Hebrew. So Babylonian would have trouble reading what he's just written. Interesting, huh? The other thing that's interesting is I don't think he published it until after the empire fell. And so he's just telling us what they told him. Now it's okay because it's already on its way, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. And then the other thing that happens is Daniel is such a great man, and he becomes sick over this, and it overwhelms him. It's a call for compassion. Certainly we should be upset when we know that bad things are happening, and certainly there are things that I'm glad I didn't know about the future, and I'm sure you're glad you didn't know about the future. And Dan, you know, we think, well, wouldn't it be great to know about the future? Well, he knows about the future, and it's not so great, and it really upsets him. But in the end, what does he do? He gets up, and he goes about the king's business. Um, and that's... That's really, I think, you know, the primary message for us is to be humble, to understand that we don't have control again. God does. But we need to go about the king's, capital K's, business. What is our king? What does King Jesus want us to do? We aren't, he doesn't want us to know all the things about the future. We can't know it all. But he wants us to go about his business. He wants us to pray. He wants us to study the Bible. He wants us to learn about prophecy. He wants us to build relationships with one another and get actively involved in smaller groups and ministries together. He wants us to share our faith with those in our lives, um, and especially the 8 to 15 people that we most interact with. Uh, he wants us to use our gifts and abilities with whatever it is that we do in our careers. That's our ministry in our neighborhoods and among our friends. He wants us to just do it, just do what we do. So that's a major part of what happens here. Just go about your business. But another thing that is significant um, is we've got to be careful that we don't get too puffed up about our knowledge or get too wrapped up in end times, right? They can, it, it can eat you alive if you get into this stuff too much. And people do that. I remember the first book I read, and, and it can be used for good because it can pique your interest. The first book I read as a young follower of Christ was the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And if you read that book, he does not say when the end comes, but it's hard to believe that we're making it out of the 1970s. And guess what? We're still here. It got really wacko in 2000, didn't it? Remember Harold Camping? He was absolutely convinced we were going to end in 2000, and he kept changing his position over and over again, kept trying to this is why I know it's going to happen. And, and he died just a, really a broken man. I, I knew some people that knew him, actually, on that radio station. I actually spoke on his radio station once. I thought he was going to be famous, but I don't think anybody remembers up from my family that I spoke on it. Um, but, but it was a sad story. You know, he didn't start off that way, but eventually he just got the thing ate him up. God doesn't want us. To, he, he doesn't expect us to know these things. And those people that go down that path, it eats them up. So... 
be careful. You don't get caught up in that. You're not one of these guys that's always talking about prophecy and you know all the answers to the prophecy because you don't. And that's just going to get you in trouble. At the same time, it's not bad to talk about prophecy with people. It's a great opening line. You know, I mean, if you want to talk to somebody about the Lord, ask them about, what do you believe about prophecy? What do you believe about the end? What do you believe about your life? You know, the Bible actually tells prophecy for 400 years out. I can give you an example. We were just studying about it in church this week. 400 years in advance, he knew it was going to happen. So God knows what's going to happen in the future. We don't know. Have you ever thought about it? There are some things we can know, but you can get in some good discussion there talking about how much God knows and, and how little we know and how much we need a God who knows it all. One more thing I want to bring to your attention because it pops up a lot, and I think it's, it's um, kind of interesting. Uh, you know, by the way, you know, another good, good verse. Well, I'm, I'm going to get that. I'll, I'll hold on to that verse. Um, one of the things to watch out for are numbers. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says that the kings will be handed over to climactic kings for a king for a time, time, and half a time. Clifton talked about that last week. Chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, talks about 70 weeks of years. Chapters 10 through 12, he talks about the abolishment of sacrifices and abomination for 1,290 days. And chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, um, talks about how blessed the person is who reaches the end of 1,335 days. What are we to make of all of this? It's baffling. And this is, you know, I mean, this has gotten a lot of people to be better in math, I guess, because people are trying to figure all this stuff out, right? But they all get confused. And here's the bottom line. I think the best answer is God has spiritually calculated how these events are going to end. He's got it covered. You don't have to worry about it. And you'll never figure it out because it's his calculations. It's the supernatural calculations of Almighty God. And they're not the calculations of us. He has it figured out, and he'll make it clear when the time comes. But for now, we don't know. And that's okay. The verse I was thinking about is Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Okay? Um, so so that's, that's the basic idea here, is not to worry so much. God's taking care of tomorrow, gang. He's taking care of it. Now, we ask the question, is there anything that we can know, maybe even in this passage, about the end times? And there is some stuff going on here. Jesus, in his famous Olivet Discourse that's recorded in Matthew um, 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, he's on Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives looking down Jerusalem. We were there. We were there just a couple of weeks ago. So cool, we're there. Oh man, this is where Jesus said it. You, you look at it all, and he's talking about this, and he's looking down at this magnificent view. And Jesus says, um, there's going to be some things that will happen as we draw to the end of time. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes and natural disasters. There will be false messiahs. There will be an increase in those. Have we seen an increase in those? Sometimes it seems like it may be modern technology adding to it because we have a lot more information than we do. We live in the information age. But I think we have to agree that it's increased, right? We, we have to agree. Um, and then comes the big question about what about the Antichrist? Well, here's what's interesting is when we talk about Jesus, have you ever noticed that they'll talk about Jesus and there are some comparisons to Melchizedek, 
to Joshua, to, um, to Elisha, to Solomon, and they're all types. They're, they're, they're not perfect, but they're kind of like, the Messiah's going to be kind of like this guy. He, the Messiah's going to be kind of like this guy. The Messiah's going to be kind of like this guy. Oh, here's the Messiah. We see some similarities with this guy Antiochus. There are other descriptions of this horn. He keeps coming up, but they, he's described in different ways. And if, if you study it closely, it's not the same guy. And it seems like there's going to be some people that are like him and maybe one that will be even worse at some point in the future. And so when we look at that, we see examples of Herod the Great, Nero in the ancient world. In the more common world, we can say Napoleon, um, Hitler, Stalin, and depending on your political affiliation, Obama or Trump. Right? I mean, people do that. But when I was younger, it was Ronald Reagan because, you know, Ronald Reagan has Ronald Wilson Reagan. It's 666, the, the letters in his name. And so people will do these strange things and go off. But the point is, is that we don't know exactly how it's going to end. Some people don't even know for sure if there's going to be uh, this, this person known as the Antichrist. I, I, I believe there is, but, but I think we all have to be on our toes because we don't know exactly how it's all going to shake out. Tell you, when you're in Israel, you could see very easily that the Israelites, uh, that, that Israelis could very easily take over the Temple Mount and uh, we got a world war going. And then we see what's going to happen from there. So we don't know. Um, we have to keep our eyes aware, you know, have to be aware of what's going on. But, but here's what's most important is we tend to get so fixated on, well, you know, how's this going to work out for us? We need to be concerned about those people that don't know Christ. That's our job. That's part of finishing the job, right? Uh, one of the things I was talking about last week is if you look at isolated people groups, you know, they're isolated by their culture or groups that are isolated because of their language. So like, for example, say Bangladesh, I'm not for sure exactly if this is correct, but I think they have like 50 languages and none of them, and those guys can't communicate to each other. So you have churches in Bangladesh and missions in Bangladesh, but there's like 50 people groups that have never heard the gospel. You understand that? Our job is to reach those people. Some people say, well, we reach those people so we can bring Jesus back and force him back. No, we don't do things for us. We reach those people because it's what God tells us to do and for their benefit. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. We do this for them and for God's will. We don't worry so much about the end. God never called us to say, let's get wrapped up in the end and see what we can do to force this thing to happen to help us. We share the gospel with people so they can come to know Christ so they'll be able to go to heaven with us. That's what we do. And we let God take care of the rest. I'll tell you what, I'm convinced that if you are regularly reading your Bible, praying, growing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, telling others about Christ, doing what God tells you to do, when the time comes, you'll be ready and you'll know. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are so much in control. And today is just one of those days that blows our minds and we sit back and say, God, you are a great God. God, you are a great God. And you are way beyond anything we can imagine that you would know that many years in advance what's going to happen and that you take care of us all. So I pray that we bring comfort in that, that we don't worry that life is a little bit more relaxed and more enjoyable as a result of some of the things we've talked about today, 
but that we also keep our eye on the ball, that we are growing in our faith and anticipating what is going to happen and looking always to see what we can do to contribute to seeing people come into relationship with you so that they will join us one day in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.